first few weeks of Eastertide, we're going to be looking at some post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Today, we're going to be in John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19, which I will read in just a few moments. This week, there was an article in Christianity Today entitled, What Skeptical Scholars Admit About the Resurrection Appearances of Jesus. It was written by Dr. Justin Bass, a professor of New Testament studies at a seminary in Amman, Jordan. A main point of the article is how virtually every biblical scholar, regardless of their own religious views, agrees that Jesus's earliest followers believed that he appeared to them after his death. As a result of these appearances, the message of Jesus's death and resurrection has been proclaimed by every generation since in every nation and almost in every language. Whatever these eyewitnesses saw, it transformed their lives to the point of their being willing to live for it, completely live for it, to suffer and to die for it. They sealed their testimonies with their own blood. Now, I encourage you to read this article because it's a fascinating idea that scholars can extensively research a topic and not only not really believe in it, but not be able to refute it either. Many agnostic academics simply say they just don't know what happened at Easter, what the believers saw. Dr. Bass says if they have an open heart and mind through doing this work, they might find Jesus himself. The article ends with a significant reminder. Because the world is looking for hope, and because we as Christians believe that Christ is that hope for the entire world, where we are literally plagued, by trouble and by suffering, that we need to encourage our skeptical friends not to stop when they get to the point of saying, I just don't know. We should ask them what they think witnesses saw at Easter and encourage them to welcome the risen Lord into their lives. This is reminding me about a podcast I listened to about evangelism a few months ago. There was new research um, that shows that when a Christian is talking to their friend who does not believe in Jesus, there comes a moment where the other person begins to push back about the faith. At that point, the Christian usually stops talking to them about it. Kind of like, okay, 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 I get it. You're done. I'll leave you alone. Yet the research is showing that when a person fights back the most, they are the closest to deciding to follow the Lord. So the point was, don't stop sharing the gospel when it gets difficult. Lean in. Help people to get to a new place. Don't just leave them there in their doubts. Both ideas are the same, aren't they? One for the skeptic 
and the other for the Christian. Don't stop searching. Don't stop sharing. Keep at it. The truth is important. If the truth leads to Jesus or to another step in knowing him or trusting him, both the one who is wondering if he is actually God and the one who has staked their life believing that he is will find what they are seeking. In our passage today, we find Jesus meeting his disciples for the first time since his death. He meets both the unsure and those who easily believe, giving them a chance to know him as the newly risen Lord. We read this passage last week on Resurrection Sunday, and today we want to examine it more closely because Jesus gives the disciples four significant gifts in this passage that we want to look at. So John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19 and going all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sin sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, mm, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Let us pray. Jesus, we believe that you are the risen Lord, and we thank you for your presence among us today. Even though we are not together physically, you are here to give us wisdom, to surround our souls, God, with your spirit. And so we look to you 
as we read your word. Amen. It is still early morning on Easter Sunday as this chapter begins. Mary Magdalene has gone to the tomb and is the first to see the stone has been removed. She runs to get Peter and John, telling them she doesn't know where they have taken Jesus. They return to the tomb and see that what she says is true. The linen cloths are there, but Jesus is gone. Not fully understanding what is happening, the men return home. Mary stays and weeps outside the tomb. As she looks in, she sees two angels, and when they ask her why she is weeping, she tells them, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where. She turns around and sees Jesus, whom she thinks is the gardener, and she asks if it was him who took the body. He says her name, and she is overjoyed to see that it is the Lord. He urges her to go back to the brothers and tell them he is alive. In his, this first appearance to his followers, John records how the Lord offers them four gifts. He brings them peace, presence, proof, and purpose, all of which they will need as they live for him. The first gift Jesus offers to those gathered is peace. For the Wednesday word this week, Jake talked about this passage and he made the insightful parallel about how we are all now locked up in our homes, much like the disciples were then. They were afraid of the authorities and we're afraid of a virus, but the net result is similar. We are inside with the door firmly shut. This tie-in helps us a little bit to understand how much they would have longed for the peace of God. The Hebrew word for peace, of course, is shalom, a key concept in the Judaic mindset. We see in the Old Testament writings how humans long to know the peace from God himself. We see how he offers it through his promises and through his interventions in their circumstances. To have peace is not just the absence of conflict or of stress. Real shalom is a wish for someone to have every good possible thing from God. It is to have rest for our souls, trusting God is over all things and working for good for those who trust him. Having peace is to believe that his plan is perfect for all of creation, including our lives. We have God's peace when we are complete in him, when we know that we are lacking for nothing and everything he gives us is for our good, that we have more than enough for what he gives. Jesus brings a whole new level of shalom offering for people to understand that peace is the core of their being when they are in him, that it's a peace rooted in himself. An experience unlike anything we can know here, this peace comes from exchanging the life we want for ourselves to the one he has for us. Being reconciled to God, there is a sense of true well-being grounded in the hope of the resurrected Lord. 
the very first word Jesus utters to those hiding in fear is peace. What would that have been like? He is giving them the fullest understanding of the word that anyone has ever received before this time. To those who have just come through a trauma, to those who were in grief, to those who were without hope, Christ comes and brings a calm assurance, a wellspring of his presence that everything is going to be okay because he is there. He has fought the worst evil imaginable and emerged the victor. His redemptive work on the cross gives us the true hope that we yearn for in our lives. Peace is not an elusive dream. It is a blessing to be fully realized through knowing the crucified, risen Lord. And then we extend that peace to others in our lives. The disciples rejoiced when they saw Jesus, when they knew that he was not dead, but indeed alive when they once again experienced him among them and knew his resurrection would change everything, Jesus comes to impart peace on all people. The second gift Jesus gives is his presence. The disciples are overjoyed to be with him again. As he speaks his peace once more, he tells them they are being sent out to do the work of God, just as he was sent to them. John then records something only found in his gospel. Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on them, ensuring he will be with them as they go to make disciples of all nations. We know that the church received the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and a lot has been written about this event and how this is related to that event, which doesn't happen for 50 more days after this. John Calvin says that this was a sprinkling of God's presence and Pentecost was a saturation. What a good picture. Since we can't solve this mystery of Jesus's action in this moment, let's remember that both at Pentecost and here, a main purpose of giving the Spirit is so that the disciples can go. The greatest power we have for the mission Jesus gives us is his presence with us. The first agenda item after the passing of the peace is for the disciples to link the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross with the work that Christ now has for them to do. There's a parallel here that they are being sent out into the world in the same way that Jesus was sent into the world. They are being asked to bring his living presence into the places he sends them. We see here that the disciples are sent to bring a message of forgiveness. When someone accepts Jesus as their savior, they can be assured of God's mercy. We may have felt that ourselves, of course, when we accept the Lord, the freedom that we have, the relief that we have, having those shackles of sin just 
drop off of us. But if Jesus is not received, the church is meant to tell the person in that moment that the peace that he came to bring is for them, that the peace that he brokered on the cross is for them. The church has the power to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to those who believe in him. Sometimes in our liturgy, we do this at communion. After the silence of private confession, the pastor will say, hear the good news. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And then the people respond back to the pastor and say, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. The gift of his presence is one we rely on daily in our walk with Jesus. He fills those who believe in him. And then those who believe in him depend on him for all that it means to be his witness in the world. What does the gift of Jesus's presence look like in your life right now? There was one disciple who missed Jesus on that first Easter. He wasn't in the upper room with them and no explanation is given for his absence. Was he isolating off alone? Was he getting necessities for the quarantine? Was he not afraid to go out like everyone else was? We don't know. But let's remember something about Jesus. He chose to appear this first time when Thomas was not there. Knowing all things, he could have waited until everyone was present, like waiting to go see Lazarus after Lazarus was already dead or going to Jerusalem for the Passover later than everyone else. Sometimes Jesus makes choices because he has a bigger plan in that scenario than people know. Before this account, there are two other instances where we meet Thomas. One is in John 11, when they're going to Bethany to help Lazarus. And because of the death threats against Jesus, the disciples try to talk him out of going, but he insists that they need to go. And Thomas says, then let us also go that we might die with him. Later on, during the Last Supper, when Jesus is telling them that he is going to leave and he's going to prepare a place for them, Thomas asks for more clarification. Lord, he says, we don't know where you're going. So how is it that we can know the way? And we often forget that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that this is an answer to Thomas and the question that he asked. From these interactions and the one that we read today, we see that Thomas is inquisitive. He's a person who speaks his mind. He will follow Jesus anywhere, but he wants to know the details. So is it any wonder that he needs more proof? Doubt is a normal part of faith. If you weren't at the class, I encourage you to look up Pastor Denny's excellent teaching on doubt that he gave a few months ago at Encounter. He goes into a lot of detail about the subject, and I felt like it was a very freeing, 
um, explanation of what doubt is for our own lives and for those that we encounter as we are witnessing about Jesus. Now Thomas here actually declares that he will not believe until he is given the same experience that the others were given in seeing Jesus, his hands and his side. To Thomas the doubter, the Lord gives the gift of proof. We imagine Thomas is wavering between two truths held in tension. One is the fact that Jesus is dead. It's true that Lazarus was brought back to life, but Jesus did that, and now he's not here. So who is it that's going to raise Jesus himself? The second is that his teammates, his trusted friends, insist that they have seen the Lord. So which fact does he believe? This is the nature of doubt that our minds are caught between two or more positions and we can't quite decide which is correct. When this happens and we can't bridge the gap, a good course of action is to be truthful about our doubt. That's what Thomas is doing here. People might not like it, but being honest about the struggle is so much better than either blindly following others when you don't really believe it or walking away for good. Notice the Lord has Thomas wait a week. A week. So from last week when we celebrated Easter until today. And they're still together. They're still in the upper room when Jesus appears. And after speaking peace over them, he looks straight at Thomas and using Thomas's own words invites him to touch the wounds on his hands and side. Jesus is gracious. He's not angry or shaming. We hear his statement about how blessed those will be who have faith without seeing. And we know this demonstration is for Thomas, but it's also for all those who come after Thomas, who aren't going to have the physical ability to touch the hands and sides of Jesus. All those who will have to believe without physical proof. Jesus gives confirmation to all who seek him. Thomas is remembered more for his doubts than what comes next but I believe that it's a vital part of the story. His confession of my Lord and my God is so personal. It's so personal, but it's also the perfect end to the whole Gospel of John. Remember how John opens the book with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things which have been made have been made by him. Now we skip a few verses, and we read these words. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. The most well-known doubter of all time utters the greatest statement of faith about the Lord Jesus when he rose from the grave. My Lord and my God, he says. Now maybe this isn't a surprise if we remember that often the harder someone fights, the stronger they believe. We might take from this story that doubts are part of our lives. If you cannot believe in a crucified God, keep seeking. We can't turn off our doubts. We can't will them away, but we can examine them in the light of the information given to us. And we can ask Jesus to meet us, to show us who he is as we honestly wrestle with this truth. And we can stay in community. Thomas didn't leave. He stayed right there in the upper room with the other disciples. And when it came time for Sabbath day again, Jesus met them. So powerful. Jesus gives proof to all those who ask because he wants everyone to believe in him. Lastly, we quickly look at verses 30 and 31, which show us the purpose of why Jesus came. John describes that not everything Jesus did was written down, but the gospels give us what we need in order to believe in him. John ends with an invitation to believe, to respond to the story with a personal commitment to Jesus as Lord. His goal was for people to understand Jesus is the God who lived and died in the world so that he could live and reign in us. This is the purpose of Jesus coming. The purpose is a gift from the Lord to all of us. Through believing, no matter how skeptical or how deeply rooted in the faith, people will have true life. Last week, we celebrated the glory of Easter. And we continue to take great joy in the good news of Jesus' resurrection and how his truth brings hope to our hearts and eternal life to the world. Today, we see how Jesus gives very real gifts to help us to share this good news with others through his peace, his presence, through proof, and through having a purpose in him. Jesus, the risen Lord, is with us now. And so I invite you to bow your heads and pray. What is it in this time that you would say to Jesus, the risen Lord, about your doubts, about your faith, about what you believe in him. As you pray, what is it that Jesus is saying to you about how much he loves you, about how much he knows you, about how he can see your life spread out before him so that you might know him? and have life abundant. Let us pray. Thank you for listening. 
If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.